You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. John chapter 16, our focus today will be on verses 16 through 24. I'll be reading 16 through 33. John chapter 16 and verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were asking, what does he mean by a little while? We do, not, we do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, And I've come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you, all, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet, I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Holy Father, this is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Forgive us for our sinful expressions of grief, despair, despondency, sorrow. Your Son has risen. This is the Lord's day. Our King is exalted. So send your Spirit now. Hear our cries. We ask in His name that you would do this for the glory of His name. Amen. The collection of chapters that we have before us in John 14 through 16 are widely known as the Upper Room Discourse. Chapter 13 serves as a backdrop and the stage for this discourse. And John 17 serves as the encore to the discourse. But as far as the discourse proper, it's now drawing to a close. And as it does, we would do well to remind ourselves of how we entered into this discourse and to bring right in front of our minds what has been the purpose of the discourse. Why? What's Jesus' aim? What's He trying to communicate? So, first, how did we come into this discourse? Three times leading up to it, strikingly, we are told Jesus was troubled. He and the disciples returned to Judea, coming to Bethany, Lazarus' grave, and after Jesus encounters Mary, we're told when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. John 11.33 Throughout that whole episode, the death and resurrection of our Lord are in view. Whenever you're seeing Jesus weeping at Lazarus' tomb and Lazarus, Lazarus coming from the grave, you're meant to be thinking about the cross and resurrection as you see that. And Jesus is troubled. John 12.27, we hear our Lord cry out, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. And the hour there throughout John is a reference to the cross, the passion of our Lord, His suffering. And then on the very stage of the discourse itself, John 13, verse 21, Jesus Speaking to his disciples about one of them betraying is preceded by this narration. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So we've come to the Passover. The agonies of Gethsemane are just around the corner. And beyond that, the passion of the cross. Now... Understanding that, 
What is the aim of this discourse? And it's startling when you see it. The opening line of the discourse proper, John 14 and verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Three times leading into this discourse, our Lord is troubled. And now he tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. What's the aim of this discourse? Comfort. Gospel comfort. Throughout this discourse, a troubled Jesus is holding out to his disciples these sweet gospel morsels. His promises. He's holding them out to these disciples who have lost their appetite. In light of what Jesus has told them about his going away. John 13, 31 through 38 forms something of the prologue for this discourse that explains it. Jesus tells them, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And it's for that reason that they're troubled. This discourse then opens with Jesus responding, let not your hearts be troubled. 1633, it closes with this, let not your Hearts be troubled, that's the opening, the end, take heart. Let not your hearts be troubled, take heart. That frames the discourse. A troubled Jesus gives comfort. This is not hypocrisy. Only a troubled Jesus can give comfort. He can give comfort because he is troubled. That's what Jesus' words in the upper room discourse make clear. It makes clear that what is troubling them is the gospel. It's good news. And so as this discourse comes to a close, Jesus returns to this theme of him going away, which has in view both his Death and burial and his ascension. And he's telling them that both of those, my death and burial and my ascension, my going away is good news. Jesus opens with a figure of speech in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. This is a riddle. It's why he tells them in verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. So Jesus is using this figure, and it's clear that this figure has them confused. Jesus is not speaking plainly at this point, and they don't get the riddle. This is not the first time that Jesus has used this riddle. He's used it twice already in the upper room, 12, uh, 14 and verse 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Well, there it just seems all comfort. But you back up earlier in the discourse, and, and you see Jesus has already said something in harmony with what you're reading here, 13 and 33. Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews... So now also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Just prior to coming to this upper room, we saw Jesus say to the crowds, 
the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. John 12, 25 through 36. Then, some six months earlier, at the Feast of Booths, Jesus tells those whom the Pharisees and the priests have sent to arrest Him, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to Him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. You see, they have the same reaction to the riddle that the disciples have right here. What does this mean? John seven thirty three through 36. Now, in all those instances, there is confusion, but there is this great distinction. When Jesus said these words to the crowds, it came as a warning. When He said these words to those sent by the authorities to arrest Him, it came as a word of judgment. But as He says them now to His disciples, they're gospel. It's a promise. It's meant to be a comfort to them. In a little while, they will not see Jesus. This is why not only they will be sorrowful, this is why they're sorrowful right now. They understand something of this, but yet a little while, and they will see Him. And for this reason, they'll rejoice. But instead of comfort right now, there is confusion. Verse 17, what is it that He says to us a little while and you will not see Me, and again a little while and you will see Me? And because I'm going to the Father, so they were asking, what does He mean? By a little while, we do not know what he is talking about. They're asking, but they're not asking. They're not asking him. They want to ask him. That's made clear later. They want to, but they're not asking him. When Jesus first broached the subject, they did ask him. 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And then just recently, verse 5, Jesus rebukes them for not asking this question. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? Their asking wasn't an asking. Their asking was an expressing earlier. It was more so an expression of their sorrow rather than them wanting to learn anything of the answer. They're wanting to express their grief. Their posture in asking was more of a protest than it was a humble inquiry. If you have children, you understand the distinction between those two kinds of asking. There's an asking that's not really asking. Their question has more to do with their lips than their ears. Jesus told them the answer. But they failed to understand it because if they did understand it, they would not be sorrowful. They would be rejoicing. 14 and 28, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, Jesus' riddle, as He brings this back up, causes them to ask. See, they began by asking. They haven't been hearing. He rebukes them for not asking rightly. 
And now he's put forth this riddle so that they're asking. But they're just asking one another at this point. They are making connections. That's been clear all along the way as we've approached the upper room. They're making connections. They understand that Jesus is not talking about some short-term trip where he's going to go away and he's going to come back. They understand something of severance is involved. They understand death is involved in this. Whenever they prepared to make that return back to Judea, you remember Thomas said, let us go also that we may die with him. They're returning expecting death. And what's really got them startled is Jesus is saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. Thomas has this grand plan. We're going to be bold and brave alongside of him. They understand Jesus is speaking of his death and saying that he's going to his father. So we, we shouldn't over-exaggerate their confusion. They're making connections. That is the reason why they are so sorrowful. But there's much that remains hidden to them. How could they know? That soon the cross would be followed by the tomb. And soon the tomb would be followed by resurrection. Yet a little while. And again, yet a little while. They don't understand what Jesus is speaking of, but Jesus understands what they're asking, verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. He knew. Soon we'll see the disciples saying, you're speaking plainly now, and now we know that you know all things. Verse 30. So Jesus knowing draws their question out into the open. And he basically repeats the riddle. You have basically two figures of speech used in, here, in this, uh, this passage. And the first one is just being expanded on at this point by Jesus. He repeats the riddle, but this time it's not in terms of perception. You will not see and you will see. He repeats the riddle not in terms of perception. He repeats the riddle in terms of their emotional reaction to it. Verse 20. Because they won't see, they will weep, they will lament, they will be sorrowful. And because they will see, they will rejoice. With the late great Australian uh, theologian Leon Morris, I think it is significant that Jesus speaks not of their joy being replaced not of sorrow being replaced by joy. He speaks of their sorrow being turned to joy. Later, Jesus promises, you will get the riddle. The very thing that is causing your confusion right now will be what makes you laugh. You'll be in on the joke. You'll see the answer. You'll understand how it is that a troubled Christ speaks to your comfort. The gospel is a divine joke that Jesus lets his friends in on. And there is no joy comparable to being let in on the joke. The idea of sorrow being turned into joy is supported by the second figure of speech that Jesus presents them now. Verses 21 through 22. 
It's striking that Jesus refers to this woman being in labor and having joy on the other side of that. He refers to the pain, the labor itself, as her hour. Her hour. Throughout John, the hour is again and again a reference to Jesus' passion, his suffering. John 2.4, Jesus told his mother, his hour had not yet come. Now it has come. 12.27, now is my soul troubled in what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. The hour of Jesus' agony will be the hour of their agony as well to a lesser degree. Even though I'm sure this was the greatest agony of soul they ever endured. But it shouldn't have been. The agony of their greatest despair should not have been such. But one of joy. Jesus' agonies were birthing gospel joys. If they could only understand what this moment was pregnant with, they would have a posture of anticipation earnest, expectant joy. But Jesus, He will see them, and then their troubled hearts will rejoice. They will rejoice, verse 22, with indestructible joy. No one will take your joy from you. Jesus has already promised them that the joy that they'll have then is His joy. 1511, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The very truths that cause them sorrow now. These things I've spoken to you for your joy. The things that Jesus is saying to them are the reason they're so sorrowful. And he's saying these things will be your joy. And the joy that you have then is my joy in you. The reason no one will take their joy from them on that day is because it is seated, exalted in heaven. They can't touch it. They'll soon crucify what is their joy. For all your shaking your head at their sorrow, don't miss this. How often are we sorrowful over such pathetic things? They're sorrowful because Jesus is their joy. And the promise of the gospel here is one day your joy, you'll see it. It's completely indestructible. It already is. Everything that's happening right now that has you sorrowful is working towards that. But it'll be plain to you soon. Your joy is indestructible, exalted in heaven, glorified. But for now, they fail to comprehend the riddle of the gospel. They will see when they see. The resurrection is the punchline To the joke of the cross. And the joke will be seen to be on the world. Not on the disciples. The gospel is not a joke for those who have a dark, macabre, twisted sense of humor. It's not that kind of joke. Not that kind of humor. John Piper says the gospels are meant to be read backwards. I like to say it this way. 
you have to read the Gospels twice in order to really just read them once. What Piper meant is you have to read the life of Jesus in light of His death. And I think he would, he would intend by that, you have to read His death in light of the resurrection. You must read the life of Jesus in light of His death, and you have to read His death in light of His life, His resurrection life. Sinclair Ferguson tells of a clever British economist who, when asked in December of the economic forecast ahead, replied, the significance of Christmas will not become clear until Easter. The significance of Christmas will not become clear until Easter. Easter is the explanation for the riddle of Christmas. Why God incarnate? And for us to understand that riddle, the flesh must be unwrapped and rent and bloodied. And even so, that's not understood until He's resurrected in glory. If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. There's no good news. Without the resurrection, the cross is void of good news. To get the riddle, Jesus cannot simply tell them the answer. They must see the answer, but they will see. And they will laugh. And so Jesus then at this point, in verses 23 through 24... He turns from asking to seeing. He turns from asking to seeing. In that day, he tells them. And it's the same day, the day of his resurrection. In that day. But I think the, the asking that he's talking about here extends even further into the future than the seeing. The seeing happens three days later. But the asking is pushed out further into the future. And that's part of the reason why I believe Jesus is telling them, you'll no longer ask me. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name. I believe the idea is, while Jesus is physically present... They just come to Jesus with their questions. In that day, he's resurrected, but not only resurrected, now it's getting back to he's absent. He's going to his father. In that day, they won't just come to him and ask him. And this isn't a loss. Because they come to the father through the son. They come to the father in the name of the son. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, Jesus said this earlier, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask me in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, you notice that Jesus there, he speaks of them asking him. But he, he speaks of them asking them in terms of he's going to the Father if you ask me anything in my name. And now he begins to fill that out. 
whenever it's talking about asking in Jesus' name, the ascension of Christ is assumed. That's what I want you to see there. He's going to the Father. Prayer may be addressed to Christ. That's clear by what Jesus says there. Prayer may be addressed to Christ, especially prayers of thanksgiving and praise. That's perfectly appropriate. But the standard shape of prayer is that it is offered up to the Father by the Spirit through the Son. So what does it mean that Jesus says that they can ask Him, but they will not ask Him? This is a promise of something more grand. He's no longer physically present among them. They come to the Father Himself through the Son now. And this promise, these promises are made right alongside all these promises of the Spirit being given. Another comforter who will lead them into all truth. Meditate more on what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? It's not only that we come through Jesus. In John 14, we see that it relates to the mission that Jesus gave His apostles to do and by extension to us. Because Jesus goes to the Father, they will do greater works. That's what we just read in John 14. All that they need to do the mission, they have. I'm going to the Father, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Everything they need for God to be glorified in the Son as they are sent out to testify to the Son, they have. It's assured. The promised air support will never fail. The Father will give. The promised radio will never fail. By the Holy Spirit, they are sealed. They have the Spirit. The promised line of communication will never fail. Through Christ, who is exalted at the right hand of the Father, we come to the throne of grace. In John 15, 7, Jesus adds this element of what it means to come in His name. So it means, it regards the mission and everything we need being there. It also involves this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Prayer in Jesus' name is prayer wherein His word abides in us. Word that the Holy Spirit illuminates and teaches. Prayer in Jesus' name is not shaped by earthly lusts, but by heavenly truths. Abiding in Jesus' word changes what we wish for. What we long for. You begin to pray like this naturally if you abide in His Word. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Abiding in Jesus' words means abiding in Christ Himself. And abiding in Christ, we saw in John 15, means being fruitful. Being fruitful relates again back to our mission. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask 
the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Now notice that the result of this asking is the same as their seeing. What happens when they see? They rejoice. What about when they ask? Verse 24. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. One of the purposes of prayer. Not the ultimate purpose. But one of the purposes. Towards the ultimate purpose of prayer. Is your fullness of joy. I take it, this correlation between seeing and joy, asking and joy, conveys that asking is a kind of seeing. Asking is a entering into the same reality as seeing. When they see the risen Christ, they rejoice. Their joy lives. And when they pray, when they ask in Jesus' name, they rejoice because their joy lives. He's exalted. And we come to the Father through Him. It is a celebrating of the same reality when they see Christ and when they ask in His name. It's a celebration that Christ is risen. The joy that they have, this fullness of joy, is Jesus' joy. 1511 again, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The exalted Christ sends a spirit. Christ abides in us by His spirit. And by that spirit, we lift up our hearts to the Father through the Son. And His joy is our joy in all of this. Prayer should be a celebration of this reality. Christ is risen. Christ is Lord. We have the Spirit because Christ is risen and Lord and exalted. And thus we come to the Father. True prayer is a celebration of the gospel. Saints, do not pray as though Jesus were dead in the tomb. Pray as though your exalted Lord, your prophet, your priest, your king is risen and exalted and at the right hand of the Father. Don't pray as though the curtain has been closed. The encore has been sung, the curtain rent, and it will go on forever. Children of God, Is your life full of joy? I don't know if there's an honest soul among here that would answer yes to that. And don't misunderstand me. There is a place for lament and longing. But do you know something of this joy? If it's void of joy, then I ask, do you pray? 
And immediately, I think most of us would say, not nearly like I should. Perhaps that's a big reason why I'm in despair so often, because I am in prayer so little. But even if you are praying a lot, and you have this further diagnostic question, do you pray in Jesus' name? And I'm not asking if you throw on that phrase at the end of your prayers. Don't casually use that phrase. Remember the cost at which you're able to say in Jesus' name. Is His glory your zealous concern? Is that why you weep and lament and cry out in prayer? Or is it your comfort, your concerns, your ease? Do you approach prayer like the disciples did in this upper room? Just crying out in your confusion. That's a good impulse to have. But have you come to a place where you see and your prayers more often are a celebration of the gospel that Christ has died, Christ rose, and He's ascended and He sent the Spirit, and He has sent us. You have not seen Christ. But you may ask, because He has been seen. And He will be seen again. The only thing that the cross of our Lord was an end of for our Lord was his humiliation. It ended nothing else for our Lord. But his humiliation. And now he stands exalted. At the right hand of the father. As our king. Our priest. Our prophet. Our Christ. Our Lord. And we can come to the father. Through the Son, by the Spirit He sent. And if your prayers revel in that glory, if you pray in Jesus' name, you can bring all your heartache, all your lament, all your sorrow. And yet, it'd be tinged with this. This hope, this assurance... Christ is my Lord. God is my Father. By the Spirit I come. Regardless of how I feel, this is true. Immediately for the disciples right here, there is confusion that leads to sorrow. 
But there is a promise of clarity that will lead to joy. We stand on the other side of that clarity. The clarity comes as they're able to look back at the cross in light of the resurrection. We do not see Jesus clearly as they did after the third day. But we have come into this very same clarity that they enjoy. Saints, let not your hearts be troubled. There's so much that we remain confused about. That's true. But let us not be confused about this. The crucified Christ has risen and He's ascended at the right hand of the Father. And we come by the Spirit in His name to a throne of grace. I open this discourse saying that John 17 is the encore to this upper room discourse. And though Christ there lifted up His prayer as He was in His humiliation still on this earth, anticipating the cross, in John 17 you get a window into what the heavenly intercession of our Lord looks like. And there our Lord prays for us saying, but now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The crucified and risen Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And He sent us the Spirit. He sent the Spirit so that the disciples would record these things that He's spoken that we've been marinating in for all these weeks. And he spoke them so that we might have his joy. And in these words, he tells us that we may ask so that our joy can be full. We understand that that asking is in his name. That we come to the Father in the name of the Son by the Spirit. So saints, again... Let not your hearts be troubled. Take heart. Draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near now through the Son, by the Spirit, to the Father, so that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, our righteousness is in heaven. And our joy is in heaven. Settle our souls in that truth. Right now. Father may we feel the things of this world. Easily slipping from our fingers right now. Not choking the joys of heaven with the cares of this world. But with your word finding Good soil in our heart producing the fruit of joy and peace and faith. We will have trouble in this world. This world has been judged. The ruler of this world has been judged. 
The age to come is breaking into the present, making a people for yourself and making them new. With that, Father, we ask in Jesus' name that as your gospel's been proclaimed, Father, we pray there are souls that have never prayed before. They've said words, but they've never really prayed before. But Father, please, Jesus' name, may your spirit work now so they cry out to you in the name of Christ for cleansing, for forgiveness. May they draw near in Christ. May their joy be full. So that you might be glorified. So that your son might be glorified in that joy. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.